0: Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before. He's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape during week 96 of quarantine. From my eight-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City, adjacent California, boasting completely obstructed views of absolutely nothing. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, once again, our dear old friend, the lead singer of Sugar Ray and the host of Mark McGrath's 120, her weekends on the 90s on 9 here on Sirius XM. Hello and welcome back, Mark McGrath. Mr. Mike
1: Tully, always a pleasure. And I gotta say, I'm missing the intro music.
0: You know, I know. I- Oh, you're I mean, giving away the secret. Well,
1: I, forgive me. I, I'm always stepping on myself and putting both feet in my mouth. What happened? What's the secret?
0: So I'm not, usually when we do it in studio, God, I miss that studio. Wasn't that a nice studio? It's such a beautiful studio. <laughs> what just you guys get? Six, seven months out of it and then gone? <laughs> I actually drive past it sometimes. It's so sad. It's such a beautiful um, spot, man. Wow. It's really, really nice. And it wasn't even done yet. And wow. So yeah, usually I play the intro, which is the instrumental version of one of my own songs because I, I own the rights to it. That's the reason why I use that. I can't get sued by, for that and uh, talk over it. And I have to lay it in and post. There's some, some radio speak. I lay it in and post. But uh, uh, it, you can totally hear the difference. I can hear when I, when I edit these things back that it's, it's just not the same. I'm not skipping on top of that thumping bass, you know?
1: Yeah. And there's just some kind of tone that it sets where it's like, I know, I know you hate I know you hate this. I know you hate it, but it's got a very Jimmy Eat World feel to it, which makes me very, makes me very happy. Puts a smile on these veneers, you know?
0: I have been compared to so much worse than, than Jimmy (laughs) Eat World. So am I. So what, It's been over a month, two months. Time is so meaningless at this point. What is something you've been doing to pass the time, to kill the time? Have you gotten up to anything that you did not used to get up to because of the circumstances of life as we currently know it?
1: Yeah, I guess being a dad, you know, being around my dad. (laughs) Right. The accidental parent. Yeah, you know, I accidentally fell into parenthood uh, backwards. But I'm gone so much, Tully, that just being present for my mm-hmm. kids an extended period of time and getting to watch them grow and go from fourth grade to fifth grade and be there for all these things online. Uh, by the way, everything's got a, uh, asterisk on it, but, um, that, that's been really cool. And it makes you really appreciate how much my wife does, you know, uh, I think the unsung heroes of this world, besides essential workers and all that stuff, let me be completely political correct, are the moms, man. Moms, moms keep this world turning around. They keep your house 72 and sunny. So I've uh, learned to really appreciate that. And I've gotten, I've, I've gotten to be better at acoustic guitar, something I've always wanted to do. You know, I'm yeah. starting to into the, some of those suicide hits of the 70s. You know, the Randy Van Warmers, the... Uh, the uh, uh, Gilbert O'Sullivan's. You know, I'm really digging deep into the acoustic suicide dentist chair hits of the 70s on acoustic guitar. So, uh,
0: as you can see, I'm putting my time to good use. Wait, why why of all subgenres, to get into the the maudlin hits of the 70s? (laughs) Why did you choose to focus your energies there? Because there's so many acoustic driven songs, be it America,
1: you know? Uh, it was just sort of like Wow, they're, they're all acoustic-driven, and they're all you know not easy to play, but they are suited for acoustic guitar playing. You know, rather than going through my Clash, you know, anthology and trying to you know in- interpolate those on acoustic guitars, why not just already you know America's presented you with these platter of acoustic uh yeah. of, 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 of treats? So uh, that 70s period, Neil Young. Ah, uh, Joni Mitchell. I mean, it's just tailor-made for someone who's just mediocre guitar.
0: You know, it's amazing to me how how Maudlin, You mentioned dentist chair, and that's a perfect setting for it. There's this weird, depressing undercurrent. I think there's something sort of accidental about it, where when people decided that the most hit modern thing you could do with pop music was to lay a lush orchestral thing on top yes. of it. Yeah, that that is part of it but there's something else about like the, the Carpenters, which yes. is, they're, they're just, they're on the surface, these very cheery songs and just barely below the surface. They're just anthems for suicide.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, if you listen to some of the lyrics, you're like, hey, you're hearing a song like, oh, well, Alone Again Naturally. I'll say, you know, you know, yeah. uh, you know looking back over the years, my love not disappear. I remember I cried when my father died, never wishing you know, all back with tears. At 65 years old, my mother, got rest of soul. Couldn't understand why the only man she had ever loved had been. It's just a constant barrage of people (laughs) dying, throwing themselves off towers, getting left at the wedding uh, altar. I mean, uh, you listen to those lyrics like, oh, my God. And like, also, in retrospect, when you listen to the Carpenters after what happened to Karen Carpenter, there is such a layer of sadness to those songs that was already oral in sculpture. But when told with the retrospective of the history of the band, it's like, where's the the noose? I mean, you thought Nirvana was dark. Go listen to the Carpenter's Greatest Hits right now.
0: pretty grungy stuff well and there as i'm sure you recall there was a tribute album was it if i were a carpenter where all those grunge acts covered that stuff because oddly enough superstar by the by the carpenters was tailor-made for sonic youth that's right
1: who (laughs) knew you know and uh it's just it's, it's very very strange you said something interesting about the orchestral sort of layers of that music and i wonder who was the producer of course, George Martin started laying, uh, you know, some orchestral parts over the Beatles stuff. And I remember uh, Paul McCartney famously said that uh, 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 George Martin destroyed, um, uh, what's the song where they, he, he did a big, uh, I, I can't Long remember. Winding road. Yeah, it is that. Yeah, it's the Long and Wine Road, exactly. And George, uh, Paul McCartney always hated it because of all the orchestral layering that he put on it. And he released, you know, an acoustic version of it. It's clearly worse. You know, it's, it's like a subjective thing. But there was something about those 70s hits that had this, like, you know, these, just, these, these layers of orchestral thing. That I, and I, it was George Martin, obviously, maybe started by, um, you know, Phil Spector was very into all that stuff, too. But it's very strange. The 70s just took that turn. We're saying yeah. this lane. And not only that, it's going to be gigantic pop songs they're gigantic hits you know
0: right well it crossed over from like the standards and stuff because you have your your more typical sinatra stuff that you think of but then you get into you know when i was 17 which is more of 60s and that's a way more forlorn orchestral thing going on absolutely and it rides all the way to and this is one of the many reasons why i continue to ride for original real disco it's it's kind of the secret sauce that made disco really pop like that BG stuff and all of that. Yes. Yes. I mean, think about it. dance, 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 dance,
1: those little mm-hmm. orchestral sounds. Bam. Bam. I know. You're so correct on that. And like, everybody what, thinks and, about the Waka Chika Waka chica. I like, and just the lameness of it all, but there's some real, real orchestral <laughs> things. And <laughs> really in right. like, how Deep Is Your Love? Probably the, the disco ballad of all time has some of most lush, beautiful orchestral arrangements in it. That's just, mm-hmm. it, that's pure beauty. I, I separate disco when I hear How Deep Is Your Love. To me, that's one of the greatest songs ever written, you know? And you mentioned something interesting. This, when, there was a period of disco you liked, and then when did it end to you? Was there a demarcation well, time or a record or a space when you said, I'm, I'm off the disco thing?
0: Well, the joke is sort of that disco died and there's all sorts of weird cultural and racial and sexual overtones to the, the big, the, you know, the night at the the Comiskey park when all the white Sox fans trashed all this stuff. And so that's when disco died and it became, and that's, that's how culture was
1: that 79?
0: Yeah, it's got to be seventy nine, eighty, just just about that. But it's really and funny. And it was five it,
1: cent beer night that night too, by the
0: way. Right. So that really added to the the melee. You know, it was the middle of a double header, and they had to cancel the <laughs> yeah, second. That's right. I <laughs> but it's just funny how much of the uh, electronic pop that immediately followed it was barely disguised disco. You know, the stuff that that Giorgio Moroder is right. really famous for, and all it really was was disco played with electronic music. Which I, I like and I, I have my own appreciation for, but I have this real fondness for that last era of dance music that was made with drummers and yes. bassists.
1: Yes, Tony Thompson and those amazing monster drummers. And,
0: you know, Pratt yeah. was
1: coming from Germany, you know, and started, and then, you know, you had uh, punk rock was bubbling under, so they kind of led to this post punk disco thing, which I think became new wave. I agree. I mean, it came in oh, yeah. a way. Yeah, yeah.
0: That's I don't know that people understand that. I'm not sure that I understand that, to be perfectly honest. It seems to me, and I, I quote this all the time, so I hope I understood him correctly. When I interviewed Johnny Rotten, John Lydon, he said he was disappointed that the legacy of punk became people who continue to look like and sound like the Sex Pistols. I have neighbors that way, that there's two of them that still have, you know, uh, casualty style punk hair. The Liberty and still, Spikes, Liberty Spikes. And they s- still got, you know, jean jackets with the patches of all these bands you've never heard of that all use the same the same font. And, and yeah, and John Lydon said the whole thing with punk as he understood it, and he's somebody who should understand it, is that everybody had to do their own individual thing. And if somebody at the club was doing this crazy thing, well, that crazy thing was spoken for, go find your own crazy thing. So whereas we tend to think of... A lot of the early new romantic stuff as this sellout, soft um, answer to punk. A lot of those guys, and you know, Susie from Susie and the Banshees is a perfect example of this, yeah. were punks who were just like, they've already done the whole three, three chord thing. The only way to be punk is to do something different. And it weirdly was punk to do these very melodic keyboard electronic pop songs. Yeah, no. Yeah, they you're right. They were the direct. And, they they were the direct heirs to Punk more than the bands who sounded like the Sex Pistols that were around in eighty two, eighty three.
1: That's a really good. That's a really good take there. And, and you know, Johnny Johnny Rotten walked it like he, he talked it because Public Image was not widely loved at when they came out because they were so different from the Sex Pistols. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Never mind the Bullets came out in what seventy seven and seventy nine. Uh, Public Image was released, and you know that had a little bit of Pistols overtone, but then he started getting to uh, you know. Uh, metal box and all this stuff that was just so dissonant and hard to listen to and challenging. And that's what he was all about, you know? Um, so he definitely walked it like he talked to, it. but it's interesting today because it's a cool look, those Liberty Spikes, man, you got, I mean, you know, here's the thing now though, it's safe to do. I'm old enough to remember, when it was, you look like your neighbors right now, you were getting your ass kicked walking out that door. You literally were because you just looked like such an alien. I mean, now it's on, you know, the runways of Paris and all that. It's in commercials. People our age are run Madison Avenue now. So you hear of the damn, the clash, 999 yeah. on Toyota commercials, you know, so it's completely safe. And so it's, It's a cool look, man. It's a cool look. Uh, I got my black flag tattoo. It was one of my last ones I ever got when I was like 42 because it was safe to get now. You know what I mean? I, I I wish I was 12 when I got this because I love black flag. But it's just interesting how all kind of comes around and becomes safe. And it's kind of what we're talking about, how, you know, about this TikTok thing before we got on. How I'm offended by it now, but like you were saying, remember, like when people were offended by the Beatles and then, you know, punk rock came along, and my dad was like, this will never be popular ever. This is the worst music ever. And then 10 years later, Offspring and Green Day are leading the charts. So it's just funny how it all just comes around, you know? And I guess, what, what is that phenomenon? Why does something new have to be completely just. You know, a sterilized, commercialized, and then uh, regurgitated. It, it, it's weird. I, I know I've been deep in, in land, but.
0: Yeah, you've basically drawn up the blueprint for a uh, new country. Yeah. <laughs> Take everything that was once challenging and provocative and right. unsafe and and put it in a blender and then put it in a casserole dish and then bake it <laughs> at 350 for three or four days and put a cowboy hat on it
1: <laughs> <laughs> and then market it and you're you know mm-hmm. you're golden it's just crazy it, it's it's crazy man hey when did you yeah. interview I, I remember you at stake i named my son lyden as you know after johnny rotten what what year did you interview him
0: Oh man, that was I was really nervous and he called me out on it. He knew I was nervous. Yeah, I don't blame uh, you. Right, right. Well, I didn't get I was it, uh, man, that was within a year of my having moved to Los Angeles, so it's like 05 Yeah, I would have handled it a lot a lot. I don't know that there's a good way to interview him. I don't know that he, he, he I'm really interested in even talking to him. Him and Gene Simmons are in that same category. If you just bring them in, so's Rollins for that matter. Yeah. You just You just wind them up and just sit there and nod your head for you know for three or four minutes while they answer. But I was I was definitely intimidated. I was really proud of myself that I asked him one question or made one point. I said, you know, it's so interesting that you were presented to the world and presented yourself to the world as this sea change in what was going on in music and rock music. And now when I listen to Nevermind the Bullocks to me, it just sounds like a really good rock record. It doesn't really sound all that different. He said, I would have disagreed with you very strongly on that when it came out, but I think you're right.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you look at their, at their influences, they, they like the faces, they like, like Rod, Rod Stewart. I mean, I mean Paul, you know, Steve Jones could, wasn't that great of a player, but he had a lot of, he had a lot of musical talent. He, he, I mean, he had a lot of good influence. He liked, they liked pop music. And they were a cover band before they got through the pistols and they were playing the covers. So that was where they chose from. And I think John, John Lydon in retrospect, loves to say, you know, um, maybe, you know, maybe revisit the narrative of maybe his life. I think he wanted to be, you know, Robert Plant. He just did it his way. You know, maybe he didn't have a five octave range, but he hit the zeitgeist. He knew where he was at. He was a smart guy. I mean, 20 yep. years old writing those lyrics that never mind the bullocks that still hold up today, and you're trying to lead a revolution. I mean, that is that has got a, that's got farce written all over it, and today it still stands up. And when you think about it, one record put the pistols in the Rock and roll Hall of Fame. One record that's pretty yep. incredible. I don't think another band has done that.
0: I think you're right that it's kind of hard to make that kind of an impact without being aware of, of of who you are despite how much you might strive to convince the world that it's happening driven. effortlessly. Yeah. A- ambitious. You were driven. You know, whatever yeah. that meant, you was driven, you know? I always dug that about Bono when he switched to the fly glasses and he just said, I'm just so tired of pretending I'm this humble guy from Dublin. Yeah. Like that's <laughs> exactly what he said. No, I know. He made up that character mefisto or whatever, to be like the decadent
1: rock star. He always, it was inside him, he said, you know what I mean? And he, he made, you know, yeah. that character he made up for the fly or the zoo tour, or whatever it was. So right, uh, right. No, I respect that. I respect that. I, I don't mind your bullshit as long as you understand we know it's bullshit. Do
0: you know what I'm saying? Right, right, does that right, make right, sense? It does. Of course it makes sense. I just interviewed a guy who made a documentary a couple of years ago about Gigi Allen and he even talked about G.G. Allen as being conscious yes. of the image that he had created. And, and in the end, probably a victim of his own devices. Creation. Because yes. the, doc, the documentary is about really about G.G. Allen.
1: I'm just saying, Todd Phillips made that original documentary that's the gnarliest thing in the world. And Todd Phillips became this A-list director, as we all know. So, that's right. No, I, I, did
0: not get, I did not get Todd Phillips. <laughs> it's, it's this guy. Good yeah.
1: score, dude. Yeah. What, who, what is this document he's, you speak of? I've seen them all. I've watched them all.
0: It's called The Allens All in the Family, and the guy's name. He's oh, that's a, great. Right? Pretty good. He's a Danish filmmaker. I spoke to him in Denmark. His name uh, thank you, Zoom. The, the the COVID era giveth and taketh away. <laughs> um His name is Sammy Saif, and he reached out to the mom, Arlita, who passed away a couple years after they made it, and she'd been approached a million times, and he was able to convince her that he didn't want to because she's so well, she's embarrassed by being Gigi Allen's mom and all that that implies, yeah. but she also feels responsible. I didn't know about the, the really horrific, like horror movie level abuse that, the, that his family and, and, and went through when Gigi and his brother were young. And so obviously she bears some guilt for having had this father around that was just a, a straight up monster. So-, so it was
1: his dad that lived with him, not like a hundred boyfriends. It was like the, his dad was a monster that created Gigi Allen.
0: Dude, his I didn't know his name is his name is Gigi. Um she calls him Kevin cuz she renamed him later. His actual given name is Jesus Christ Allen because his wow. father his father had a religious vision that yada yada yada. So the kid is Jesus Christ and they're living in a log cabin in the woods of like Vermont, New Hampshire, I think. No running water no electricity there's all kinds of abuse going on and oh there's and there's the dad digs this huge hole in their dirt floor cellar and the mom says what are you building that floor for and he said i'm gonna put you guys in there
1: no no did did, G, did jesus christ allen hear this
0: I don't believe that he heard that. So at a certain point, she said it was from an era where. The yeah. I think he got the idea. I think he got the idea, and it made the brothers incredibly close because him is, and is, Merle.
1: Is Merle in the documentary? His,
0: oh his yeah, brother.
1: Oh yes. Okay, good. Yeah.
0: That's all we. Merle, it. Merle is. It's funny. There's a number of guys like this I- across the music world, but really in the punk world, where he kind of lives at this point to merchandise his deceased brother. And I know it keeps the memory alive. I understand the emotional stuff too, but uh, uh, Jerry Only from the Misfits is like, if you meet the guy, I've seen him wearing, you know, Misfits shoes, Misfits socks, Misfits (laughs) t-shirt. And then when he doodles, when he gets up and walks away, he's been drawing a Misfits logo. Like there's this, I, I'm not making that yeah, up.
1: I, I know you're not. I know you're not. He's committed, he's committed. But you know what, right. dude, these, guys, these guys lived on nothing for so long. If anybody's going to monetize this punk right. rock commercial revolution, Merle, Merle Allen should make, a, you know, Merle Allen should make about 40, 50 grand off G.G. Allen merchandise a year. I think to me, that's yeah. justice. Uh, Jerry Only and the Misfits selling out arenas. Last year, that is punk rock justice to me. So I, I understand the sort of like, because you know, they, they live in a space, especially the Mississippi for so long where they never got their due. And you see the Offspring, Green Day and all these bands. And like, I don't want to talk about the bands like the Vandals and TSO and all these bands that were on the front line of the war, taking the shots, taking the black eyes, and then just got lost when it became a thing, you know? So
0: I understand the need to monetize and, or, and sort of like make sure the legacy's intact. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, he is making sure the legacy is intact. You can, go, <laughs> you can go on eBay right now and buy a painting that Merle Allen has made with his own feces.
1: Wow, I'm gonna yeah, pass that out. But if, if Gigi, I might buy a Gigi one
0: though. Yeah, and if that one's sold out, don't worry, there'll be another one in a couple <laughs> <of> days, so.
1: <laughs> it's him <getting> 12 hours. <laughs> wow, fascinating, I can't wait. How did you see this documentary? I'm assuming it's not on Netflix
0: man i'm i'm not trying to be like as indie as i'm just sort of naturally turning out to be i feel like every time there's a movie that, there's just something it's always been a thing with me that when there's like the big thing everybody's talking about i just it really makes me not interested in it i'm yep. just not like a joiner and then when i just read like if i'm like walking down the street and i see like a half of a torn up Piece of paper hanging out of the garbage, and I pick it up, and it talks about some documentary that came out in France in 1937. I'm like, "Ooh, got to put that on the list." I don't know why. I don't. know you're, why. you're so that, that's, that's what you're it is. I'm a natural born, <laughs> born. I'm a natural born contrarian. I swear, I, I, I'm contrary with love, but if it doesn't. It doesn't always come across. But so, so many of the movies that I'm interested in seeing, it turns out, I can only find on YouTube. That's yeah. been happening. To me. I just watched this amazing documentary. It's a short watch. It's called. I think it's called "80 Blocks from Tiffany's." And it's mm-hmm. just about street gangs in New York, like the war, like warriors Whoa. kind of stuff in the late seventies. Check it out. I watched this thing and I'm like, okay, this is cool. It's kind of a fly on the wall thing. And at the end it says produced by Lorne Michaels. And I'm like, how the fuck did Lorne Michaels have anything to do with this? It was um, over the summer in, in the late seventies, early eighties in Saturday night lives time slot. So instead of showing an SNL repeat, they sent, like camera guys from SNL up to the Bronx and they just film this stuff. Cause you can see there's TV breaks in and stuff. It's, that is the craziest thing. Uh, 80 blocks from Tiffany's, right? I believe is what it is. I might be wrong on the number of blocks, but otherwise yeah, you can, close. Close. it's a totally yeah, figuring how far the South Bronx is from yeah. from, from, from Lincoln center. Done. Yeah. And, and, and I couldn't find it anywhere. And I finally just found it on YouTube and I just got to thinking about GG Allen. I've had a little bit more downtime, what with everything that's going on. And usually I'm very reactive with guests on my show, you know, that the talent relations department is cool enough to find people who want to combine. You say yes or no. This is the first time that I've really started to say, who do I want to talk to Let me see if I can go and get them. Started thinking about GG Allen. for some reason it didn't even occur to me to talk to, to Merle. And I just said well, somebody has to have made a documentary, and this guy came up, and the talent relations department was cool enough to help me track him down in Denmark, and there I am talking to him. But yeah, it's it's on YouTube. You pretty pretty that, much. Won't that's
1: phenomenal. It. Did, did you get any insight on what they thought of Todd Phillips' documentary? Was there any talk about that?
0: So the I don't know about like what the the GG Allen camp thought about it. I did talk to this filmmaker Sammy about the reaction from the fans of Gigi and the fans of the Todd Phillips documentary, or I should say the, the blowback. And he said that a lot of Gigi's fans didn't like it because they didn't like to learn about or be told about the human toll of what Gigi was doing. It made it a lot less fun to know that his mom was off there somewhere crying, wishing he would come home.
1: Right. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. You don't want to put a human touch on something like that.
0: You know what I mean?
1: Uh, it's like reading about a serial killer and finding out he's got a family at home. You you, you, you know what I mean? It's like, uh, so I I understand that. Um,
0: Interesting. Interesting. So as always, I put together a topic, a musical topic for us to discuss. This is a pretty fun, a pretty easy one. I don't know why I didn't think of this a while ago. I'm going to play you a song that you most definitely know.
1: No, I'll never know it. Whenever you say that, I never know it.
0: I think this song went to number one in like 1986, so I I have a good feeling.
1: I can't believe from the band that wrote and played Barracuda. Oh, come on. How great was, how great was Barracuda? No, no. But let me finish. Crazy on you. These incredible Mm -hmm. rock classics somehow pivoted, Mm -hmm. let's say seven years later into that. I mean, it wasn't even 10 years later. We got one last shot at this. You know, it was like, they just made a natural pivot into that and succeeded radically in that. And, uh, were probably at their commercial apex during that period. To me, that's just very strange to me. And I wonder if they wrote that song or not.
0: They definitely did not write that song. That song, These Dreams, as recorded by Hart, was co-written by a guy called Martin Page. I forget, he wrote some other hit things. Martin Page is
1: a UK guy. He was in like, uh, I can't remember. He's He's a UK producer. I know that. My bad.
0: And lyrics by Bernie Taupin.
1: Ah! Well, there you go elton john's co-writer and it, those that don't know bernie Taupin wrote every lyric you ever heard come out of elton john's mouth
0: even all the ones yeah, you couldn't
1: understand that, that's exactly right <laughs> and and bernie Taupin would sing send the lyrics first meaning it wasn't like elton john had like a piano arrangement he said to bernie bernie had the lyrics done and this was the way that this is the order the lyrics are going to be in you know what i mean and so they just, he would just run down to make it. To me, that's an incredible way to songwriting. Very difficult too.
0: It's a but very, very, a to- very unusual way to write.
1: What is the topic we're discussing? I don't know. Can I, can we just jumped right into it. What What? are we you're gonna, guess, you're gonna, you're gonna guess.
0: You're going to guess. You're going to figure it out. Okay. So okay. Martin Page and Bernie Taupin wrote that song. I think, oh, the others, I don't think they wrote We Built This City, but that was the other song that was offered to heart. Man, we could do a whole episode just on bands, who sounded one way in the 70s, who all had their thing, who at some point had probably the biggest hit of their career in the 80s, Cheap Trick, Chicago, Heart, Starship, and the yep. story the story is literally they could have done that one by that other, by Steve Winwood or whatever, and instead they chose this one. They all, and it worked for all of them. They all had these massive hits with these songs, which have a special place in my heart, but which are very oh, too. vanilla, you know, disposable kind of pop songs. It was the way to stay in the game. And I see it again when I check out new releases for the Jason Ellis show to hear every single band that used to have their own sound that still wants to remain relevant take on a strong EDM flavor nowadays. It's the exact oh, yeah. same phenomenon repeating itself.
1: Well, look at what Maroon 5 has kind of become. You That's know what right. I mean? They're the only band today, rock band, with guys that have played, that, that have mutated into this thing, which is like, he's doing his like, Post Malone things like, eh. I mean, he's doing those kind of vocal stylations now to stay in the game and they're doing it because they're that talented to do it and they're great songwriters. Uh, Aerosmith, another band who in the 90s kind of carried on this 80s tradition of finding an outside songwriter, having your biggest hit of all time. Mm -hmm. I don't want to miss a thing. It's Aerosmith's only number one song and this is from a band with that catalog that they wrote. So it's such an interesting thing to say, well, we used to be able to do it. We can't anymore. Hey, Martin Page. Bernie and what do you got? Yeah, It's a crazy thing to rectify with as a musician and songwriter.
0: Sure, the 80s stuff with the outside songwriters for Aerosmith made more sense to me because they were like these powerful progenitors to hair metal. Like hair metal ahead, is largely just some combination of Kiss, Aerosmith, and the New York Dolls. And yeah. when all these bands show up, do three gigs at Gazzari's and all of a sudden have a platinum record, Aerosmith should have hits too. So it wasn't that weird. Even if Angel isn't the greatest of all the hair metal ballads, sure, get Desmond Child in there. You guys deserve, uh, not another run at this, a bigger run than you had the first time around. Ditto Alice Cooper, who was an inspiration and also got to, um, you know, wet his whistle. With the the 80s fame, the 90s stuff, really, to me, is where the wheels came off and it just became this disposable, you know, pablum. I'll, I'll take 80s Aerosmith, uh, Janie's Got a Gun over I Don't Want to Miss a Thing any day.
1: Uh, oh, yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, a lot of these songs, too, with these, uh, you know, let's say bands that were established in a different decade that were trying to try to stay relevant, a lot of them went to outside songwriters under the guise of I'm doing this for a soundtrack. You know, we'll right. do the Karate Kid 2. And, you know, well, we just found a movie and they needed a song. And so we did it. You know, there there was a way to sort of be deceptive with the release of this, which made it more palatable
0: for the consumer. You know? You mean Peter Cetera's heart was really into doing that? <laughs> <laughs> exactly what I'm talking about. And if that
1: David Foster anywhere near the production of songwriting, yeah. you, were gonna be, uh, you were gonna be in a Ralph Macchio movie pretty soon. Believe that.
0: Okay, so you heard the last song, These Dreams by Heart. When you hear this next song, you might be able to figure out what our theme for the week is. Okay. You can go on thinking nothing's wrong. Who's gonna drive you home
1: tonight? Does that song just get better as time goes on? God, that is such a beautiful song. Of course, Benjamin Orr's singing that. That's uh-huh. the cars called yes. Drive. Mm-hmm. Now, what I'm getting at now is I'm thinking, you got, we might be doing
0: bands that have two singers that sing hit songs. Are we doing that? That is what we are doing. We are doing bands who are identified with a front person lead singer who had the odd one-off or several-off song uh, sung by a bandmate. So right, I did not realize that These Dreams by Heart was not sung by Ann Wilson, I didn't have MTV back then. and I don't know what my parents were trying to prove. So I would have known if Jeez. I, if I, I know. Talk about abuse. What are you looking at Gigi Allen's house? I never did go down to the basement. <laughs> Something about <Yeah>. it. <laughs> right. So I don't know the reason why Anne didn't just sing that, but they, they heart was given a choice between we built this city and these dreams. And I think wisely chose these dreams. And here's another story that you hear all the time. Nancy had a bit of a cold. And so her voice was a bit off. I I, I know that story Mm -hmm. about, I talked to John Bryan about the um, Fiona Apple version of Across the Universe, which I will go to my grave believing is superior to the Beatles original. Fiona didn't wanna sing it, just cut a rough scratch vocal, give me one more take, I got a cold. That's the finished vocal, it's the best the vocal ever yep. done. There was a song on the second Extreme album that I remember, that was the story. They had to use the demo because he'd had a cold. It's a thing. And, and, and Hart happens, said- human beings. Subsequently, the producers would say, can you get sick again? Because we really like that voice <laughs> <laughs> you have. <laughs> <laughs> right, so here's the crazy thing, and this will not always be the case in the music we will discuss today, that was Heart's first number one song. Which and- is
1: mind blowing to me, when you think of the, you know, the legacy and the catalog of Hart. And again, it's gotta mess with your mind when you've written all these great songs and your first number one, you didn't write. Yeah. you know, And you know, it's crazy. we built the CD on rock and roll a number one song too. So that Martin Page-Bernie Toppin combo that was lethal. And that, that was the same year, maybe 86, maybe 80. I, we built the city, it might've been 85, but they had a great year or two there. Yeah, you know? yeah,
0: yeah. Well, if, if Hart was offered both of them, obviously they were floating around record labels at the exact same right. time. So they probably came out around the same time. And then- But
1: the irony is they both went to number one. That is the right. irony. They didn't go to number eight. They both went to number one. And I think getting back to the Heart singing thing, I think Nancy has a, a more of a husky- deeper baritone to her voice than Anne. Anne could sing notes that dogs can't hear. You know, she's got an unbelievable so I always liked the rumors. Maybe her voice was so but I just think Nancy they would have waited for Anne's cold to go away for two days. You know what I mean? If they really needed Anne to sing that. I think Nancy's voice might have just suited it better. You know? Well she no 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 no, no. The,
0: Nancy Nancy had Nancy had the cold. She sang it with the cold and they're saying she had a tone to her voice that she'd never had before and was oh, well, able well, to well, replicate. Because she because she you. was under the weather. I don't know why Ann didn't didn't sing it. Maybe it's the incense and peppermint thing again, where you <laughs> know. If, and that's I told you last time I we wanna, spoke that I was prepping this episode that where Strawberry Alarm Clock would r- refuse to dignify recording that and let some teenage pizza delivery guy that was hanging out record their only hit song. And so that, that's another example of a, a song that was sung by somebody other than the the lead singer of a band. The car song Drive. I don't know if it was their highest ever charting song. It was definitely their highest ever charting song, at least at that point that reached number three on the charts. So if you're yeah. Rick O'Casek, what does that make you think when the, the guitar player, or the bass player sings it and it sounds nothing like the cars and it's your biggest hit?
1: Well, the cars had an interesting dynamic because Benjamin Orr sang a lot of songs so okay. does as, well as Rick Ocasek. So I think it might've gone to who wrote what they all wrote, you know, they're all incredibly talented songwriters. So, Sometimes it's by default. I wrote the song, I'm singing it. Yeah. You know, but sometimes it works the other way. I've heard people say, listen, I, uh, I wrote the song, but hey, 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 Liam, you can sing way better than I can. You know what I mean? Even though Noel Gallagher sang a few Oasis songs. So it's an interesting thing and a great problem to have. Oh, you've yeah. got great songwriters and you've got two great singers in a band, but it's interesting because the cars, and certainly, certainly hard it's hard to distinguish between the two voices yes. if you just always told me you know ann wilson saying that don't even worry about it i would have never questioned it you <laughs> know? I never did um yeah well i i, I really didn't either until i, I knew a couple of years ago because i kind of heard the story but uh about, about who's saying that but the cars i always thought benjamin and Rick case sounded a lot alike i don't know
0: why i did but when you put them a, a- B- them together they sound nothing like really you know interesting they both do a little bit of a deadpan talk singing thing. They're not. Like maybe you know, a little new wave thing. Once right. In a while. Exactly. You know, there was a little thing they kind of both
1: developed. Yeah. You know, I'm a very you know?
0: smart guy who took a vacation in London. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly. So yeah. I think, I guess they, I guess the phrasing was very similar. A couple uh-huh. of very tonal qualities. But I think when you listen to Drive and you listen to like you might think, you could really hear the difference in noises, you know? Yeah, like well, I said, okay, good problems to have.
0: Okay, so they got the last laugh either way, because the the love interest in the music video for Drive was the model Paulina Porskova. Yeah, uh, they're, I think they might, well, they worked together until he passed away.
1: Well, I guess they, it was a really strange thing. To kind of, I want a little deep dive on them. I guess they had separated. Oh. And they'd separated, but he had got sick. And she, uh, like a dutiful, uh, significant other who still was in love with the most significant person in her life, was really there to nurse him during the last six months. And was the one that, you know, did all the, you know, all the, the caretaking and almost was like a nurse for Rick until he passed. Mm-hmm. And then he found, she found out she wasn't in the will when he passed. Oh. How about that little zing? You know what I mean? So I thought that was a, that was a pretty crazy, uh, you know, end of that story. You know, here she is coming back and kind of going full circle, you know, you, when you're sick like that, you're going to find out who really cares about you, you know? And I just thought that was interesting to teach just
0: yes. got kind of zapped. Yeah. And when a rich person dies and their will is opened up, you're going to find out how they really felt about you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, she bore him two children.
1: She was a, I mean, they were married a super long time. They were married since, you know, you might think video. So yeah, she's uh,
0: gorgeous. And he's a swamp monster.
1: I, I know. Right. She's still beautiful, man. I saw yeah. a picture
0: recently in a bathing suit and I'm like, Oh, and little, he looked and duh. he looked like Lyle Lovett's creepy cousin. He certainly did. <laughs> <laughs> he looked like Joey Ramon's good looking brother. <laughs> well
1: there's some continuum
0: between Joey Ramon and Lyle Lovett and somewhere in the middle you will find Rico Casey. <laughs> So I have another song. um, You're talking about, you know, how this can create some differences within the band. I think most of this stuff I'm going to get to as much as we're able to get to today. They were amiable. I know that this song, although not a hit song, um, an indie hit song, definitely created some drama for the uh, internal dynamics of this band.
1: Ah, uh, such a great band! Of course, the Pixies.
0: Yep, I think I've come to the conclusion Mighty that that Doolittle might be my favorite album that that is yeah. and ever will be. You know, bro, the longer time goes on and you see
1: what I didn't see the impact then. I was old enough when it came out, and oh, that's a cute little college. We called it college music back right, then. Yeah, cute, cute, cute little band. But that, you know distorted guitars, loud chorus breakdown into the verse, which is bass, they started that. They started loud,
0: quiet, loud. I mean, that is crazy. That's,
1: they started that. Now, if that, I mean, which led to all the, the nirvanas of the world, and God knows what else. And then, uh, you know, I, I think they're, I'm glad to see they got back together and got yeah. to cash in on the, the, the legacy that they, 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 they deserve. Um, Kim Deal singing, of mm-hmm. course.
0: But did Kim
1: Deal write that?
0: i think she did she typically got one song on every album and they were typically by far the worst song on every album and they typically still played them live because i think that was sort of the 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 deal the deal unspoken unspoken deal i think she wrote gigantic even though it sounds like it could be more of a frank black song than her other more dirgy stuff that tend to make it on the album but i think frank black felt like he was somebody who lacked charisma and looks and conventional talent and made himself into this thing. He had all these weird, different singing voices, such an inspired songwriter character. And Kim Deal pretty much just woke up in the morning with a needle hanging out of her arm, pulled into (laughs) a room and was instantly captivating. And obviously that helped make the band successful, but supposedly the, 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 the point of no return was they're backstage at some festival and Iggy Pop is there and they go hey Iggy do you have you met the Pixies and Iggy's like oh man gigantic I love that song and that was when Frank Black oh. realized that having despite having written Doolittle which the 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 Kim Deal song on Doolittle is just far and away the worst song it's completely disposable it does not need to be there she had just stumbled on and and, and, and in fairness she did it again um, uh, Cannonball the yeah, I mean,
1: also, uh, summer
0: is ready when you are. I'll go. I'll,
1: you know go, to Vine, song? I'll uh, go to Divine Hammer. Oh, the Divine Hammer's of a beautiful. The record's great. Yeah. So I, I, I think you know the Frank Black genius is totally intact and safe, but I think Kim Deal is more of an MVP, uh, as history will show us, uh, than, 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 uh, than was originally thought of because the Breeders are a great. The Breeders is the only thing he ever did in music. You had an incredible music uh, legacy in history, you know? It's kind of, uh, it's kind of like a, uh, what um, – it's kind of a Dave grohl light thing. You know, she moved on from one of the biggest bands in the world to create a really great band. It's hard to do that, man. Not many bands have been successful creating another identity after it's such an identifiable band.
0: Right. Well, it definitely helped for both her and Grohl that it wasn't their vision. They didn't have to go and make a second vision. Good point. You know, they Good went point. and, and – I'm a little bit more bearish on – on, um, the Breeders, I, you know the band, The Thermals. I spent a little time with their lead singer, and, d- d- and that's like the the alpha and omega of music. Everything for him comes back to the Breeders, and I'm like, man, I, I, I got a couple songs <laughs> on a mixtape. But let's come back. To, we might got to go back a little bit. You know? <laughs> but you know, <laughs> but that's the way it strikes him. He's not just saying that, you know. To it doesn't impress anybody to say he loves the Breeders. He really connects with, <laughs> them, you know. Um, I will be curious to see if you know this next song. This is another famous band uh, band member, not the usual lead singer, although frequently a vocalist on their songs sang this one. I did not know that this actually had been a single.
1: Well, it's certainly R.E.M. Yes. Right? And it's certainly Mike Mills singing lead. Certainly. And, uh, you know, by the way, I did not know that right away. I had to get into, like, all all of it. Um, You know, I'm like, boy, this sounds like everything at once. You know, it it feels like – because in retrospect, everybody tried to be R.E.M. in the 90s. You know what I mean? So I had the jangly, jangly guitars, beautiful harmonies. I mean, I was even hearing – the, I was hearing the – Stone Roses in there for a little bit. You know what I mean? I heard a little bit of Blur in there. And then I heard Mike Mills. Then I heard Shiny Happy People. It came to me like, boom, right. that's R.E.M.
0: Yeah, Near Wild Heaven off of Out of Time. That's the Losing My Religion, uh, Shiny biggie. Happy People. Yeah, that's the the biggie. I don't think that was Everybody Hurts, but that was that, that's like probably the biggest R.E.M. And I then, think it was Everybody Hurts. I think it was. You might be right. That's the song. I don't know that- that made me realize that I liked R.E.M. and did not like Michael Stipe. <laughs> now, now, why is that? Did you
1: think that, like, is Mike, Mel- Mike Mills the uncredited uh, harmony melody guy in that band, do you think? Because his lilting harmonies, he is the Michael Anthony and Van Halen to uh, R.E.M. So he's the, yeah. and you know what I'm saying? He's the Michael Anthony of R.E.M. If, if REM did not have Mike Mills singing those powerful harmonies, you can hear it in Shiny Happy you hear to that, you hear it in Driver Aid. So yeah. many songs that lifted those REM songs from funeral dirges into mm-hmm.
0: pop classics. Not you know? another man on earth could have handled the dip, 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 dip like <laughs> like Mike Mills did, you know, I think even more than Mike Mills, it's Peter Buck. Cause I got, that was one of the yeah. Columbia specials. I spent a penny and I got my 12 cassettes. And that's when I finally was like, okay, let me see what R.E.M. is, is all about. Contrarian that I am, I was more concerned with yeah. getting uh, glam band demo tapes mailed to me from Japan. And sure. listened to it once, didn't, didn't do much for me. you know what I noticed is I went back a couple years later and listened to it. And like every song that started, I was like, oh yeah, this one, why don't I listen to this album? I like this. And then Stipe came in and I was like, oh yeah, that's why. So, yeah, exactly. I think I really like Peter Buck. I really yeah. like Peter Buck cause the, the, they are the American Smiths and I know it incensed yeah. them when they toured English for the England for the first time the Smiths comparisons and what do you think of the Smiths and are you influenced by the Smiths when they have been doing it for a couple of years before the Smiths, but sure. Michael Stipe is the American Morrissey, no two ways about it. And Peter Buck is the American Johnny Marr. And I really like the American Johnny Marr. Why do I like Marcy and not like Michael Stipe? Maybe it's just Anglophilia or something, but I did not, I did not care for the, the, the stipe I
1: think some of what Michael Stipe does and is, is, um, uh, do you remember the thing uh, in MTV when he had 100 T-shirts and he took them all off and he said, like, he said like no guns, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, no meat? And it, it's just – I'm all about having beliefs and, you know, be, be creative. But, you know, when, when they are, you know, when, when they are absolutely, you know, shoved down your throats and it's just nonstop and it's relentless and there's never a moment of levity and brevity, that's when I just question it a little bit. You know, it's just a relentless. Like, um, if we don't feed the people, we're all going to die. And I you know, we think that, them you know, somebody like, you said, game last night. You, know, you just not all. I, I and I don't. I, I can't speak for Michael Stipe. It's just my own personal feeling. You know, yeah. I think he's a great songwriter, and, yeah. and the R the REM catalog is undeniable. I mean, it's they're sure. also that they're also that 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 whale out there in the rock festival sphere that if someone gets REM to play their festival, your festival just became the biggest festival in the world. So uh, it, they're, 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 they're impeccable songwriters. Uh, their tastes precede them. You know, you know, you, you can almost tell Peter Buck's influences by the, the Rickenbacker, the 12 oh, yeah. String, you know, it, 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 and, and then they became great songwriters. You throw Mike Mills into that band. They're arguably better than the Smiths though. I think the Smiths wrote better songs. That's just my, uh, what, what's, your, what's your take on that?
0: Well, Morrissey is just this, um, m- my wife suggested one time that Morrissey is on the spectrum and it is a pretty amazing spe- skeleton key for understanding Morrissey. Um, for somebody who has no musical ability, I don't even think he can play a guitar or piano, has a, a, a savant's touch for melody that- yes. Neither Robert nor, Smith nor Michael Stipe possessed. And Andy Rourke is the bass player of the Smiths. Andy Rourke and, he Rourke. And Mike Joyce is fucking incredible. He is one yeah. of the most amazing bass players for playing combination of chops and playing within a song. He's like McCart- yes. McCartney esque in that regard.
1: You're right, because he had to fill in a lot of blanks. Because yes. a lot of what Johnny Marr is doing is picking. Ding, 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 yes. ding, 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 ding. You know what I mean? And so you've got to be very tasteful. Otherwise, you're going to fight the riffs that Johnny Marr... Because Johnny Marr didn't really play straight chords. He was, he was picking through the chords. It's all and if you don't our nice Exactly. If you don't have a nice face accompanying to that, you're going to ruin it. So he knew how to be, he knew how to be Andy Roark. That's right. know, I'm gonna stay out of the way and play yeah. my position.
0: And Peter Buck was layering stuff, was trying to sound like, you know, the birds and stuff like that. The Smiths, again, as we were talking about at the beginning of this show, being a post-punk band, trying to define themselves as doing something that was new and different and shocking, had this weird ethos about the first couple of Smith sounds, particularly the first one, as big as the guitar parts are, and as like Phil Spector-esque uh, uh, of the ground that they cover, it's very often Johnny Marr playing one guitar part, which left a lot of space. Later on, you know, the queen is dead. He's layering just like everybody else was. But in the beginning, Andy Rourke had to do a lot of heavy lifting because it's a four-piece band where the guitar player's picking little notes, and that's all you're getting from the guitar.
1: Exactly. And then hitting like an effect pedal, let it go. I got to fill this in? What am I going to do?
0: Exactly.
1: Uh, yeah, I saw, I saw Morrissey at the Hollywood Bowl, uh, not, not last summer, uh, obviously 2019, and he played two hits. He played he, two sold out night the Hollywood Bowls. And I, I'm talking to a Smiths fan, and I know the Morrissey solo catalog. He played two hits. And so you're talking about a contrarian. It was a big, fuck you, I'm playing what I want. You know, when he could have – and I'm not saying you've got to pander to the audience like I do. <laughs> you don't have to do what I do. You don't have to play fly three times a night. It's Okay. But just knowing you have these songs in your back pocket, they could lit up the sky at the Hollywood oh. Bowl. Maybe just a couple more. I you know, know. And he played the songs that were on the spectrum of like hits or not. We you know they were kind of, eh, you know. So I he, he's just a really interesting dynamic character. And I guess he's got these far-right
0: beliefs as well. He had all yeah. these really interesting he, he, merchandise. He, he always did, though. If you actually go back and check yeah, out he, the –
1: but he used to be the need is like we're all love. And now he's got like these far rights, keep England's blood, like pure. I'm like, what is, what? Well, am I watching, you know, s-
0: Screwdriver or is this Morrissey? You know, it was, it was, it was confusing. You know? But that was always in there. What's the song, Bengalian platforms from Kill Uncle? Life is hard enough when you belong here. There's always yeah. been, well, he's got a song called National Front Disco. The National Front yeah. is the far right political movement in France. Like, there's 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 been a, England for the- The kids were there. Yeah. England for the English is in National yeah. Front Disco, and he may say it was tongue-in-cheek, but it's always, it's always been, been in there. He believes in uh, a, a world that hasn't existed for like 150 years, and that's English people. Obviously, he would not be eating mutton, but you know what I mean when I say English yeah, people no, I mutton. Know, exactly. And French people bicycling down the street with baguettes hanging out of their, their berets, and he can't grasp globalism which is so strange because that's like a hooligan football mentality, the very
1: people that used to like beat the living shit out of him on the way to a New York Dolls concert or David that's Bowie right. concert. Do you know what I mean? That's, that's oh, I know. You almost become, you almost be a, look, we're all becoming our dads, aren't we? So, I mean, it's just, you almost become what you, uh, I don't want to say dislike or hate, but you, you, almost, you know what I mean? It, it's, it's strange. I do know though. what you
0: mean. He's taken a very unique Morrissey route to arrive. Yes. So he's, he's ended up with some very strange, bedfellows because he didn't get to the extreme or despicable beliefs by the same route that they did or even the same like philosophical underpinnings that they did. He's just, that's, that's who he is. And he's made it his, his life to be exactly who he wants to be and not please people. And in a way I respect him for saying what he really no. thinks. He can't be the only celebrity it, who, who thinks that sort of stuff, but yeah. No. Uh, especially yeah. in
1: today's culture, like to, to literally just have an opinion and a strong opinion that that is that, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's certainly unique. Um, but I, I didn't see that sort of belief in the Smiths. I think it's something developed later in his solo career. That, that's, I, think,
0: that's, I think you might, uh, I'd have to go back and look at that, but definitely from early on in the solo stuff, I think he's a pretty loathsome person who just makes beautiful music. I think that may have always yeah. been the case. I've always heard, you know, they say, don't meet your heroes. I've really heard do, if you love (laughs) Morrissey, do not meet Morrissey. I've heard that. Yeah. Well, it happens a
1: lot, you know? Yeah.
0: So as usual, I have a great big list of stuff I want to talk to you about. And as usual, we are already out of time. I'm going to play you (laughs) one more of these. So maybe you'll, maybe you'll know this one. This is very famous band bandmate. I'm pretty sure had never taken lead vocals on a song until this one, which was very near and dear to his heart. I I, dude, I there's, not, there's not
1: even a hint. We find a clue in there.
0: Wait, I feel like Is he, there a chorus like, coming? Uh, that might already be it. Oh, I thought you got it with the whatever the, the Brandon I Love You bit. No, I didn't get it. Okay, well, the Montley Crew album Generation Swine featured a new lead singer on all oh, of the songs. Oh, it's
1: Tommy Lee! Kobe,
0: except for that one dedicated to his son. Nothing will make somebody write a horrible ballad, like having kids. a
1: child, a child, <laughs> that's not so true. Bro, I swear to God, I heard the piano, like okay, home sweet home. That's yeah. immediately what I thought because Tommy Lee wrote the piano, as you know, to home yeah. sweet home, Motley Crue's gigantic hit. Oh my God, that's crazy. And I thought it was an English voice. I detected a little bit of an accent, you know? Oh boy. You did yep. it again, you did it again, Mike. Uh,
0: An homage to the love of his life, Pamela Anderson. And
1: <laughs> I was here the night they met, by the way.
0: Really? No, I'm
1: not kidding you. We were at a bar in Robertson. I think it was called Union. And uh, she had just broken up with Bret Michaels. And he had just broken up with Bobby Brown, the cherry pie girl, of course. And I was, you know, I just got to LA. It's like 94. And I'm trying to hang out. I got my wife respecter on, you know, we can't call him wife, wife respecter tank top. You know, oh, I got gotcha. you running all these cool party guys. Yeah. And I, I, I don't have to do it. I forgot I was smarter. And so I met with Tommy Lee and a couple of guys and and Pam Anderson walks in and uh, Tommy goes, Pam, come here. And Pam comes, sits down in the booth with us. I'm like, fucking Pam Anderson. Oh my God. They go to Cabo San Lucas that night, get married three days later.
0: Wow. Were you married her three days after he met her. Were you a party to any of the conversation or dialogue between them? Like the exact moment that they...
1: He said, "Hey Pam, come here." Just yeah. like that, she came right over. it. she, i she had this yellow, like, plastic dress on. It was, I mean, she was so—I mean, she's still stunningly beautiful. She sat down. It was like a loud club, so I couldn't really hear her, but I could see that it was going great because they were like sucking. Fa- I mean, I mean, there was such a chemistry between those two, you know. Yeah. And like, you know, we all disappeared, and it was just all about them. And then I went home and had like a hangover for three days. And I woke up later in the paper: Tommy and Pam married in Cabo. Yeah. And then the two guys that I was with. We're, I, we're in the picture with the same clothes on. And I'm like, God, I, I, too bad
0: I passed out. Or,
1: <laughs> I, wish I, did hard dr- I wish I did hard drugs back then. <laughs> I'm going to have some fun.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'll say that for cocaine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and thus began one of the great love stories of the 90s. Of all time. It led to that
1: beautiful song, Brandon. You know, as we, and then Brandon uh, eventually wound up kicking his father's ass in a, uh, a TMZ video.
0: Did you see that? I I did, yeah. We we have followed. Sad, the- it's just very
1: just not a dad, man, because my son he's ten, so he's about three years away from kicking my ass. So I, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I can relate, you know. I really can.
0: Yeah, it's, it's time to start giving that guy more ice cream and <laughs> <laughs> making him an ally. Yeah, you got it. <laughs>
1: TikTok all night long, bro. All
0: right. Well, it has been fun as always. It has been too short as always. Let's do this again soon. You are Mark McGrath and you are the host of Mark McGrath's one twenty weekends on the nineties online, right here on Sirius XM. Thank you, buddy.
1: Always a blast, Holly. Really. Thank you so much, man. Let's do it once a week, man. I'd love to do it. The people want it.
0: The people want it. Let's make it happen. Let me and
1: me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, pal. Have a good one.